But first, it's time for a new regular segment. As you know, we've already covered the Pacific. We look regularly at, uh, at the US and the UK. But tonight, we're going to look at what's happening across Asia. Our focus is Southeast Asia, and here to kick us off is Aaron Connolly. Now, Aaron's a, a senior fellow for Southeast Asian politics and foreign policy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Singapore. Aaron, thank you for helping with this inauguration. We have to start, of course, by talking about Myanmar because today marks the second anniversary of the military coup. So what do we know about the situation now? Well, thanks for having me on, Philip, uh, as the, the inaugural guest for this segment. It's, um, it's a tragic situation in Myanmar. Uh, Myanmar's experienced conflict around the periphery of the country uh, since independence, but it's really been almost 70 years since we've had conflict at this level in the center of the country, and it's resulted in thousands of deaths of uh, peaceful protesters, but then also of armed combatants engaged in a, an uprising against the military junta that took power two years ago today, uh, and also mass displacement and humanitarian needs. And so, and also, time, of course, some, some strategic hanging of young protesters. That's right. So back in July, the junta executed four political prisoners for the first time since the 1970s. Uh, and these were uh, leaders... Uh, going back to the uh, previous uprising against military rule in 1988. Now, people in Myanmar, or Burma, as many prefer to call it, have drawn attention to how the world's response to the coup pales in comparison to the response to the war in Ukraine. What do you think of that criticism? It's a criticism that many Myanmar people bring up uh, repeatedly, Whenever the, the subject of Ukraine comes up, they say that if they were provided with the uh, arms that the Ukrainians have been provided with and the attention and the international support, that they would have been able to overthrow the military junta, which they regard really as a kind of occupying army uh, itself because it's so distinct and set apart from the people. Um, but the truth is, these are different situations. Um, the Tatmadaw is not actually under international law an occupying army. Um, this is a civil war that is in some ways an extension of a civil war that's taken place in Myanmar since the 1960s. Um, and in other ways, this is an internal political issue in Myanmar. So it's a much more difficult issue for uh, the international community to handle. Now, the UK, US, Canada and Australia have stepped up their support today. Could the rest of the world be doing more to help? The, the Australian sanctions that were announced by Foreign Minister Penny Wong earlier today, uh, they're the first use of Australia's new power to sanction uh, individuals and entities overseas since the previous government brought that power uh, into being uh, towards the end of its term. And, you know, sanctions can be used for a variety of different reasons. Uh, they can be used to try to affect a policy change or a regime change. That's certainly um, the way that they're being used in Ukraine, for instance, where the goal is to get the Russians to leave Ukraine. They can be used to try and make sure that Australians, for instance, aren't complicit in atrocities overseas. Uh, and they can also be symbolic. And I think 
these sanctions that Australia announced today really fall into the third category. These are really symbolic sanctions against the members of the military council that rules Myanmar and has ruled Myanmar for the last two years. Um, and, and they're in contrast to the American and British sanctions that were announced today. The British chose to use their sanctions power to try to ensure that the junta has no access to jet fuel, to aviation fuel, which they've been using to bomb civilian populations in the, in the country. And the Americans used their power to sanction the junta's elections commission, which is planning to hold elections later this year, which would overturn the results of the free and fair elections that were held in 2020, which the, the junta-backed party lost. And so Australia really used the sanctions power today in much more modest ways than the UK and the US did. Let's uh, let's look at something getting less attention, and that's the migration crisis that, of course, has been escalating in Southeast Asia as Rohingya refugees flee, uh, well, Burma and Bangladesh. Can you talk to that, Aaron? Sure, and, and I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, with everything going on inside Myanmar, sometimes this does get less attention. But last year, around 450 Rohingya uh, died in the Andaman Sea, uh, seeking to flee the violence in Rakhine State, where most Rohingya still live, uh, or from the really terrible conditions in refugee camps uh, outside of Cox's Bazar in Bangladesh. Um, and that was the, a high number. Um, it, the last time you had that many uh, perish in the Andaman Sea was 2016. And so Australia and Indonesia lead something called the uh, the Bali Process, um, which was designed to prevent uh, irregular migration, but also to deal with the humanitarian crises that emerge from situations like those in Myanmar that lead to the exodus of people along the lines that we've seen uh, over the past year. And they're due to meet in Bali uh, next month. This is the and first time for five years. That's right. And um, the emergency consultation mechanism that they set up in response to the last crisis in 2016 um, has never really been brought into use, and I think there's a real question as to why that is. But the the, the question um, that I think many in the region have is what the Bali process can do to create what the UNHCR calls a more equitable distribution of humanitarian responsibilities in the region. And, and to just put a, a, a finer point on this, in December, there were boats uh, full of Rohingya asylum seekers that sunk in the Andaman Sea and at that time, amongst the regional coast guards with all their tonnage, um, none actually left port to go search for those vessels to try to rescue those Rohingya, despite the fact that we knew there was a lot of um, international humanitarian attention on this, that those vessels were, were leaking, were taking on water, that they had run out of food and water to drink. Um, the only people who actually left port to try and save those people were Achaeanese fishermen, who, because it's their traditional custom to, to save seafarers in distress actually went out and tried to save them. So uh, there's a real question as to what regional navies, regional coast guards, maritime forces are doing and whether or not multilateral institutions like the Bali process can, can do more to push those maritime forces uh, to help these people. Is there anything more that we should be doing, Australians should be doing? I think, uh, you know, the Labour government's uh, goal of accepting more uh, humanitarian uh, resettlement from uh, all over the world, really, but in particular Southeast Asia, um, that is a, a contribution that Australia makes. I think oftentimes it's, it's under-recognized that Australia has one of the largest humanitarian resettlement programs in the world. 
Um, but with the crisis in Ukraine and attention elsewhere in the world, uh, sometimes the problems, humanitarian problems in our own region uh, get lost in all of that. And so uh, just keeping a focus on the humanitarian problems in this region that lead to uh, you know, people boarding these vessels and then getting into such, such distress, that, that would be helpful. Let's turn our attention to ASEAN. It's now being chaired by Indonesia following a time when in a quite surreal way, it was chaired by Cambodia. Is it likely to change its response to the various crises you're outlining? Well, I think, you know, the Cambodian chairmanship last year, uh, there were very low expectations for Cambodia. Because the last time that it had chaired ASEAN in 2012, chairmanships come up every 10 years because there are 10 members of ASEAN. The last time it chaired ASEAN in 2012, it wasn't a very good chair, and um, it had broken ASEAN consensus on the South China Sea. It refused to facilitate a consensus on that, that critical issue at a critical time. But its chairmanship last year, despite Hun Sen's uh, status as uh, someone who has suppressed democratic rule in Cambodia and has uh, you know, created other problems for the region in other ways, uh, Despite all of that, they've had a they had a pretty good chairmanship. They facilitated consensus wherever they could um, on difficult international issues, and they did more and went further on Myanmar than many expected them to. So, for instance, they chose unilaterally to not invite the Myanmar junta's defense minister to a defense meeting in November. Um, they didn't really do that out of the goodness of their heart. They did it because ASEAN engages with other countries like Australia, the United States. Uh, with the European Union, and they wanted them to show up, and they thought that those countries probably wouldn't show up if the junta was there. And so it was an example of the way in which, you know, ASEAN really, but through its engagement with the rest of the world, um, countries like Australia, the United States, and European powers are able to influence even a country like Cambodia, their position on something like Myanmar. It's interesting because there's a lot higher expectations now for Indonesia's chairmanship than there was for Cambodia's. And I think those expectations are actually probably too high. Indonesia will be, uh, Indonesia's attitude towards crises like this will be moderated by the fact that it is chair because it has to facilitate consensus in a pretty diverse region. So in the same way that Cambodia's chairmanship brought it to the center of ASEAN, um, Indonesia's chairmanship will probably bring it to the center of ASEAN in a way that pulls it away from, say, Australia and, and Europe and the United States. Okay, let's now uh, do a segue to Vietnam, which is uh, currently undergoing what has been described as probably the most significant change since the end of the Cold War. Can you speak to that for me? Sure. I mean, this is something that flew under the radar. It, it happened around the same time as Jacinda Ardern's uh, resignation in New Zealand. Um, but it might be much more consequential for the geopolitics of the region. Vietnam's president was forced to step down as president. He was effectively purged from the party. Um, and two key deputy prime ministers, one who handled foreign affairs and one who handled uh, domestic affairs in the economy, were also purged. Um, the foreign minister is under a lot of pressure. And all of these individuals um, were seen as uh, people with whom the West had reasonable relations, were seen as people who were interested in engaging the West as a counterbalance to China's influence in Vietnam. And the debate amongst Vietnam watchers now is whether or not Vietnam's strategy of engaging the West can be maintained now that the leadership, the, the portrait of the leadership 
has changed so much and those people have left office. Now, the Vietnamese Communist Party ostensibly embarked on that uh, purge on the theme of anti-corruption, but uh, as you suggest, there seems to be a titanic power struggle amongst the political elite. It, it seems that way, and it's difficult to know to what extent this really is about corruption. Clearly, there was a major corruption scandal related to the um, uh, the procurement of COVID-19 test kits and then also of relief flights that were bringing Vietnamese citizens home when the country was under lockdown. Um, clearly, there was corruption involved in that. But whether or not this corruption, uh, uh, this uh, search for corruptors within the Vietnamese Communist Party is being evenly distributed amongst those who um, had uh, had committed uh, crimes, that's the real question, or whether or not this is actually an ideological purge. And we don't really know the answer to that. It's very difficult to tell. Finally and briefly, will you touch on Japan's new security posture? How is that being viewed? Uh, it's being viewed uh, really, uh, Southeast Asian countries have really sort of taken it in their stride. And that's interesting because Japan's relationship with Southeast Asia since 1972 has been predicated upon the idea that uh, Japan would not rearm and it would assist Southeast Asia in its development. And uh, this is really um, putting the region on notice that Japan intends to become a much more much stronger country militarily. And despite the history there, the very painful history in many cases, that hasn't caused the kind of waves that, uh, say, those in Beijing would hope. Um, we saw Beijing's foreign ministry um, try and use this as a way to, to uh, put a wedge in between Southeast Asia and Japan. And that hasn't worked because I think most Southeast Asian countries understand uh, that the type of great power that China has become over the last 20 years in particular is forcing Japan into these positions. Aaron, thanks immensely. Aaron Connolly, Senior Fellow for Southeast Asia Politics and uh, Foreign Policy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And it was announced today that uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will be delivering the keynote address at your organisation's Shangri-La Dialogue in June. So we look forward to chatting about that. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.